It's been called possibly the single greatest legitimizer of mass layoffs in modern history, a destroyer of the American middle class. And I have to say that over the decades, I've seen it do a pretty devastating job right here in Australia. McKinsey and Company, known colloquially within its ranks as the firm, is probably the most influential consulting firm in the world. The top graduates of top business schools take jobs there and once you're in the firm, your career is assured even if you've been discreetly let go. Now, McKinsey likes to fly beneath the radar. It's very secretive about its client list, but... uh, let the record show its consultants promoted the securitised credit that was at the heart of the global financial crisis and it's helped uh, fossil fuel polluters churn out considerable profits. The client list includes corrupt governments in Russia, South Africa and Malaysia as, uh, as well as state-owned Chinese companies that support Chairman Xi's uh, economy and military ambitions. Now, two New York Times investigative reporters, Michael Forsyth and his colleague Walter Bogdanich, have been writing about the scandals associated with McKinsey for a number of years, and now they put them all together in a book uh, with the ominous title, When McKinsey Comes to Town, The Hidden Influence of the World's Most Powerful Consulting Firm. Michael, welcome and congratulations. Thank you. Good to be here, Philip. Let's start in uh, Gary, Indiana, with the U.S. Steel Corporation. So Gary, Indiana, is was once home to the world's largest steel mill. It's still there. Uh, Gary works. Uh, and my colleague, Walt Bogdanich, uh, actually worked in that steel mill as a young man many decades ago. So he had firsthand experience there. Um, but like so much of the U.S. steel mill, um, you know, it went into decline, especially with foreign competition, uh, people offshoring. And uh, by around 2014, this place really needed some help. McKinsey came in, had a plan called the Carnegie Way. And uh, this plan uh, was touted as a way to revitalize the company. But what workers saw was a way to cut corners on uh on maintenance and also to cut costs and workers in general. And uh, there were some cuts made to um, safety procedures, basically the idea being that uh, uh, you don't fix something unless it's about to break or broken. And uh, this form of maintenance um, coincided also with some, some deaths at U.S. Steel, and there was a lot of anger focused on McKinsey. And did this McCar- Carnegie Way work? You know, in fact, um, the losses at U.S. Steel continue. I, I find it extraordinary that McKinsey cast such a wide net. A similar approach was taken, would you believe, dear listener, at Disneyland. Tell me about that, Michael. That's right. It, it's, it's Again, it's the same situation um, where... Uh, McKinsey came in and and looked at at the at the program there and said, you know, why are you doing all this maintenance? These these rides never break. Why are you checking the safety harnesses on these rides every time? And and of course the the, the maintenance workers at Disney said, well, they, we don't have any problems because we check them every night. 
Um, you know, Disneyland is famous for being, you know, over the decades, it's a very happy place, very well run, spotless. You know, it's a place where you go to, to you know, to escape your troubles, escape the world and go into a fantasy land. Um, but again, this this focus on cost cutting, this focus on, you know, reducing your maintenance, changing the way you maintain this equipment, even though it's worked very well for a company like Disney for a long time. Um also coincided again with some pretty grisly accidents uh, at uh, at the Disneyland Park, and this is this would be the park in Southern California in Anaheim. Michael, laying off staff is McKinsey's forte, and it's dubbed right sizing by one consultant in your book. But perhaps this is no different, surely, from what uh, other consulting firms do. That's right. You know, consulting firms have been doing this uh, for decades. I think the difference here and the reason we focused on McKinsey is because it is among the three big management consulting companies. We're talking Boston Consulting Group um, and Bain and McKinsey, all names very familiar to Australians. Uh, you know, McKinsey's the, the oldest and the, the biggest, and, and, and they're everywhere. Um, all over the world, in governments and companies everywhere, and so you know the, the name McKinsey. You know when a when a company and when employees hear that McKinsey's coming in to their company to do work, it, it can can spark some real fear because they know that the job cuts may not be far behind. One of the things I've observed in Australia is that McKinsey will come into a corporation, make recommendations, and leave, but leave behind them the head consultant as CEO. Is that also a part of its tactic? You know, actually, um, it, it may not have been a tactic, but that's exactly what happened in Australia. So one of the most famous Australian firms, you know, based in Melbourne is Rio Tinto. And uh, the senior partner, you know, in the Melbourne office, and this would have been in the 1960s, I think, uh, then went on to become, you know, the head of Rio Tinto. That's uh, exactly in, the case I was talking about. I, yeah. know, I know the bloke quite well. Okay, so uh, McKinsey set about getting rid of loyal middle-class managers. This this is how it, as you say, well, it takes, it guts the middle class. Uh, you know, that, that's right. So we've, you know, looked at McKinsey going back many, many years. And, you know, you think, well, this is just a little consulting company, but it, it's, it propagates some really big ideas that have had a profound effect on the middle class, not only in the United States, but around the world. And, and one of the things we look at, Philip, was, was actually the study they did way back in 1950 for General Motors, where they found out, you know, shockingly that workers pay was catching up with with executive pays that the gap was narrowing that workers were doing really well now mckinsey fixed that problem started <laughs> broadcasting uh this pay information you know around the industries and you know and there, there became a race to the top you know no company executive team wanted to be known as you know paying less money than their competitor uh and so this this got out and this is just one example of of the the ideas and there are many more like offshoring um that that mckinsey's propagated over the years my guest is uh, michael forsyth and yes we're discussing mckinsey and one of the things of course that helps McKinsey's ascendancy is the decline of the power of the trade union. That's right. So um, McKinsey actually in its early years in the 30s was actually consulting uh, for companies on how to deal with unions which were on the ascendancy. Um, but McKinsey is a management consulting company, not a union consulting company. And these 
extremely bright, you know, just brilliant people that McKinsey hires have really put the thumb on the scales, you know, on in management favors over many, many decades. You know, this is a weapon that the, the labor unions really don't have. And, and these people really are genuinely, you know, many of them are brilliant. We've had a chance to meet a lot of them. And it's a real weapon for management against labor. And you make the point that if someone working at McKinsey for the firm is shown the door, their their career is still assured because they have that magic name on their CV. So one one McKinsey consultant said, you know, the best thing about McKinsey is leading. Um, And and it really does. It's it's true. you know, most McKinsey people, they're left, they're, they're called, it's it's called being counseled up, counseled to lead. They even have an acronym for it called CTL. And, you know, about half of the people, you know, get counseled to leave. And, but they're brilliant, you know, they're smart people. And, and having that on their resume, you're absolutely right, is is a ticket to getting a good job at another company. The, the book is called uh, When McKinsey Comes to Town. The authors, the co-authors from the uh, New York Times are Walt Bogdanich and my guest, Michael Forsyth. And I only hope the New York Times doesn't hire McKinsey. Oh, well, the New York Times has hired McKinsey and they've, they've been a client for many years. You're kidding. I am not kidding. <laughs> I am not kidding. And there was no conflict of interest for you? No, I mean, uh, we, you know, we did, we didn't really get into to that. We did mention in the book very briefly uh, that they they did work at the New York Times, um, and uh, yeah, they've worked on some of the the digital transformation of the New York Times and going over to a subscriber model, um, you know, with some of which has worked out. You know, not all McKinsey work is bad. You know, they they do have a lot of successful projects and. And that's been very successful for the New York Times. Michael, my, my blood freezes at the prospect that they're actually working here at the ABC, unbeknownst to uh, the staff members. Now, before we get to the litany of problematic projects you outline, tell me about McKinsey's values. Mm-hmm. So this is a real important part of our book. You know, so many companies have these, you know, values and they they, they, they list these things, but, you know, no company employees really put them to, to memory and it's just really lip service. McKinsey's different. Uh, they really take these seriously. Um, they have values days every year. The problem is this, some of these values are contradictory. So the, the, the one that always comes first is put your client's interests above that of the firm. And then there below that would be things like act ethically or, you know, speak out if something is wrong, things like that. But, you know, I'm sorry, they, they encourage dissent. They do. There is an obligation to dissent at McKinsey. And and if, you know, in the book, you'll see that peppered throughout that, that people actually do speak out uh, if they see something wrong. Now, sometimes that's not really great for their career, uh, but uh, but that is one of their values. Um you know, the, the problem is the first value, always the one listed first, is to, you know, put the client's interest first. And kind of the, the, the core of the book is that, you know, when you do that and your client is not a good actor, if, if the client is doing something bad, um, then that can have, you know, a really bad effect. Whilst genuflecting to McKinsey's values, let's go to the scandalous case studies that you outline in the book, uh, led by the New York Times. Tell me about uh, Purdue. 
So McKinsey worked for this company called Purdue Pharma, and you may have heard of that. This is a company that makes OxyContin, an opioid uh, painkiller. They came up with this in the 1990s. McKinsey started working for them around 2002, 2003. Um, You know, over the course of about 18 years or so, made more than $80 million from this company. And this company really is, is looked at in the United States as being one of the reasons that so many Americans became addicted to opioids. Um, and, and we have this huge crisis now that's killed you know, more than half a million people uh, in the last couple of decades. McKinsey was there to encourage their sales, you know, even after you know, people recognized what a, what a serious problem this addiction crisis was. McKinsey was there at Purdue Pharma encouraging them, finding ways that they could boost sales. And they used the term to turbocharge sales of OxyContin. That's that's absolutely breathtaking. Has has there ever been a sort of a comeuppance for a case history like Purdue's? Is yeah. there some sort of ombudsman operating over in the U.S.? Yeah, you know, th- this is the one place where there was some comeuppance. There, there were some consequences for McKinsey. So it wasn't just Purdue. It was other opioid makers as well that McKinsey was advising. Because McKinsey advises companies even if they're competing against each other. And so states' attorneys generals, you know, in almost all the states in the United States, uh, joined a lawsuit uh, against McKinsey, you know, uh, and uh, looking into their work with these opioid makers. And McKinsey early last year settled uh, to the tune of more than 600 million U.S. dollars to to end these state investigations. There's a lot more investigations at other levels of the U.S. government, though, uh, in, you know, in, in you know, local and, uh, you know, even some of the Native American tribes, uh, school districts, all sorts of people are, are, are having legal action against McKinsey. Michael, there's a paradox here. McKinsey was also had its deep ties to the FDA, the federal, uh, well, the, the Food and Drug Administration, the critical agency for companies selling addictive products. It really is a contradiction, and it's really uh, attracted some attention in uh, Congress in the United States as well. There was some, some uh, a very uh, testy hearing um, back in April where uh, the head of McKinsey was was uh, t- you know questioned by members of the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives, and yes, so McKinsey represents the drug makers and the tobacco makers, and also their regulator, the Food and Drug Administration. This is more than regulatory capture. This is absolutely surreal. So on the one hand, it's telling it's telling Purdue how to turbocharge, and on the other, it's advising the FDA to enhance the agency's ability to identify drugs harmful to consumers. That's right. So in some instances, you know, McKinsey will be working for the very section of the agency that uh, oversees you know, the drug makers or the tobacco companies, for example. Now, McKinsey, of course, will say, well, we weren't giving them specific advice on those companies or, you know, doing measures that would affect those companies. So, so it's OK. And there's no there's no conflict of interest. Let's walk this back a bit. You've mentioned that McKinsey worked with uh, with big tobacco. Tell me that story. Yeah. So this is really, I think, one of the more shocking uh, jobs McKinsey's done. The, they started. They've been working with the big tobacco makers since the 1950s, uh, and uh, but they only stopped last year in 2021. This is you know decades 
after we all knew that tobacco was deadly, you know, years and years after smokers in, in the United States, and I think in Australia, too, have been pretty much consigned to smoking on the sidewalk, can't smoke in a restaurant, can't smoke in an office building. Everybody knows how deadly it is. You know, hundreds of thousands of people every year in the United States die prematurely because of their lifetime of smoking. Um, and McKinsey worked for these people until last year. Uh, we have one example where just a few years ago, I think around 2016, they were trying to get some business from Marlboro, you know, Philip Morris, uh, called Altria now, you know, the maker of Marlboro cigarettes and touting their ability to work on loyalty programs and, and, and you know, how, why a cigarette company would need a loyalty program given it's addictive product is another question. <laughs> uh, but again, this was just a few years ago. It, it, it just boggles my mind that anyone at McKinsey would work for a tobacco company. So McKinsey is Marlboro man. Let's now do a segue and uh, head for South Africa because that's an extraordinary story about McKinsey's South African branch, which has been charged in a corruption scandal related to its work with the country's uh, state-owned freight and port operator. That's right. So uh, this was actually the first story we did. It was back in 2018, writing about the, this this uh, scandal in South Africa. At the time, we said it was the most serious scandal McKinsey had ever faced, and they've been around since 1926. I think maybe that may have been superseded now by a few other things, like, such as the the, the opioid scandal. Um, but but you know, in 2019, you know, it, it was a huge scandal, uh, and uh, just a few weeks ago, it, uh, McKinsey was actually named in an in a criminal indictment for, as you said, its work with the this state-owned freight operator, a rail operator. And, uh, you know, South Africa, the income inequality there is just horrific. And McKinsey was making just tens of millions of dollars, uh, over $100 million, in fact, advising some of these state-owned companies that really couldn't afford to pay them, given the poverty of the country. But McKinsey earned these huge fees, you know, in one instance, working for a power company. And, you know, if you know anything about South Africa, the power is going off all the time there. Uh, And that's still the case. All those all that money spent on McKinsey didn't seem to do any good. And it was part, you know, I don't need to go on and on, but it was part of this big scandal in South Africa. And I know there's many people from South Africa and Australia now, you know, who are probably familiar with this, this state capture where the, the corruption was so baked into some of these ministries, you know, in, in, in South Africa, and it were turned into cash machines for people. And, and McKinsey unwittingly, perhaps, fell into that and got caught up in this. Who, who owns McKinsey? Is it publicly listed? It is not publicly listed. Uh, it's owned by the, the partners, the senior partners, uh, and uh, they, they're the, the ones who own the company. Um, it's not technically a partnership, but it operates like a partnership. Okay, so here's McKinsey playing both sides against the middle, whether they'll work for the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, and they'll also work for the US and for China. Tell us how McKinsey is balancing the conflict or the conflicting goals of working with the Chinese companies that build islands for military bases in the South China Sea, for example, whilst also advising the US Defence Department. Yeah, so this is where it gets into this partnership model, you know, that they like to model themselves like as a law firm. And so a lot of times one hand doesn't know what the other hand's doing. So you've got these partners 
in China that have all this power and know so much about the country, you know, and, and they're getting contracts and thinking they're doing a great job, you know, getting these contracts with these state-owned companies. And one of them they got in 2015 was with this big state-owned company uh, called China Communications Construction. And this company was is one of the companies that was building those islands in the South China Sea that everybody in Australia knows about uh, that are militarizing the South China Sea and turning it, you know, possibly someday into a Chinese easy late. Um, and at the same time, a much bigger client for McKinsey was the Pentagon, you know, the Defense Department, which is constantly talking about what a what a threat to national security, what a problem, you know, a strategic problem it is having these islands in the South China Sea. So it's it is definitely a, a conflict and it's born by this decentralized nature of McKinsey. We're talking about the Monty Python world of McKinsey with Michael Forsyth. Now, I take some comfort from the fact that employees, particularly younger ones, have uh, been standing up to the company's dealings with, uh, say, major fossil fuel polluters. Yeah, that's right. So McKinsey hires, you know, one of, one of the ways they can get these smart people is appealing to their idealism that, you know, don't work for a bank, you know, come work for McKinsey and you can really make a big difference in the world. You know, the problem is when they get there, they often find that they're not doing that kind of work. They're doing other kinds of work. And uh, a lot of them were very upset, uh, including one very outspoken young man in the Melbourne office about McKinsey's work with the big fossil fuel companies. Because if you look at McKinsey's website, you see what they're writing. You know, they're all about saving the planet, about, you know, reducing carbon, this and that. But then if you look at their client list and what they do for their clients, it's a totally different picture. They're working for the big coal companies. They're working for the big oil companies, the gas companies. And the work they're doing in many, many cases, this has nothing to do with reducing their carbon output, but rather making them a more productive coal miner or oil driller. Michael, have McKinsey modified their approach as a consequence of your investigative work? They have. Uh, so in 2019, McKinsey said that they've changed the way they select clients you know, they've added some some layers of oversight to see if a client, you know, is is or work specific work with a client affects their reputation or how does it is it is it too risky to do? They've they've say they they don't work uh, with authoritarian regimes anymore, at least for the defense ministries or the interior ministry, justice ministries for for these authoritarian regimes that we've written about in the book. So they have they've said that they've changed the way they. They select clients, but we're still finding all sorts of quite shocking work they're doing. Michael, thanks very much for coming on. Michael Forsyth, co-author of When McKinsey Comes to Town, The Hidden Influence of the World's Most Powerful Consulting Firm. And I'm now heading upstairs to make sure our chair, Ita Buttrose, is not hiring them. Good on you, Michael. <laughs> Good to talk to you, Philip. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.